if all the Lord Jesus did was come to this earth and bet a model as to how we would live, should live, we would be a most pitied people. Because by his very life, he would have revealed the holiness of God and condemned us in our sin and shown us that we could never please an infinitely holy God. But he didn't come just to live a righteous life, though he did. He came to die on a cross, to reestablish what was lost in Eden, that what we could not do in human flesh, he did by sending his son. Why? That the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to our own power, but according to the spirit when you're born from above. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, The Bread of Life Discourse, Part 4. Today, we begin the fourth and final message dealing with the Bread of Life Discourse from Chapter 6 in the Gospel of John. We have spent considerable time in this chapter because if we are to understand the rest of the book, we need to have a good grasp on what occurs here. We have so far seen the Lord Jesus Christ talk about how he is the bread sent from heaven, and those who want eternal life need to eat this bread and drink of his blood. Following a quick overview, Pastor Carl will begin to look at the reaction from the assembled crowd. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. Take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6, if you would, John the 6th chapter. This is the sixth and final sermon in this particular chapter, and we've spent a lot of time on it because there are so many great doctrinal truths, and we're not going to be able to understand the rest of this gospel without understanding the sixth chapter. In this chapter, of course, we find the bread of life discourse, but we also find not only the sermon, but the response that comes. And so that's where I want to focus our attention this morning. And the response is not the kind of response an evangelist would write home and tell his constituents about. It's not what you might expect. Let's begin reading in chapter 6 and verse 60, where we left off last time. We read, many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now again, before we walk into this, many of you are here for the first time, and it won't make much sense unless you know the context. And again, I know that repetition is the master teacher, as Peter tells us, as Jesus illustrates in the four Gospels, and that very often he 
preaches the same truth over and over and over again. And I want you to know this chapter cold. It opens, if you remember, with a miracle of feeding 5,000 households, about 20,000 people who are represented. The crowds are so amazed, they want to make him king. And indeed, he is king. He is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. But their motive for wanting to make him king is a bad motive. And so the Lord withdrew to the mountain to pray. He sent his disciples across the lake, and in the middle of the night, as they are battling a ferocious storm, the Lord does really a triple, maybe you could say a quadruple miracle. He walks in the water. He has Peter walk on the water. He stills the storm. He then instantly transports the boat to the other side. Of course, the crowds wake up the next morning looking for the Lord Jesus. They sought the food giver, the fish maker, the bread baker. Verse 22 began the next day, to which someone reading this for the first time would say, the next day after what? The next day after feeding some 20,000 people. If he can take a few pieces of bread and fish and feed us all, then he can do it again. And so they want more the next day. So they sought him, verses 22 to 25 explains, not wanting him for the right reasons. And so Jesus Uncovering their motives says in verse 26, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. The only reason you want me is because I feed you. Their basic motivation was a filled stomach. And so he says, verse 27, don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for in him the Father, even God, has set his seal. He makes a double contrast here between two appetites and two methods. Two appetites between the food that perishes and the food that endures. We find in those two phrases two appetites that every person has. There's the appetite for the physical realm, namely food, and there's the appetite for the spiritual realm, again, in this case, the Lord. There's food for the body, and there's food for the soul. And this verse is really a reminder to us of the futility of the social gospel. A man by the name of Walter Rauschenbusch, called the father of the social gospel, a German theologian in the late 1800s, introduced the concept that basically was embraced in a broad way that the message of the Lord Jesus was simply to feed the hungry, to help the sick, and that that's what we are primarily to do as a church. Listen, what good does it do to feed a hungry stomach and not give them the true bread, the true drink, the bread of life? People need more than soup and soap. They need salvation, and it is only found through Jesus Christ. But a lot of churches are just meeting physical needs to the exclusion of preaching the gospel. And so there are two appetites. The most important is the spiritual appetite that only Christ can fulfill. And there are two methods that men seek to achieve these objectives. Circle two key words in the phrase in verse 27, the word work and the word give. Don't work for this food, the true food that you need, because the Son of Man is going to give it to you. He's describing two methods of filling a spiritual appetite. He's surrounded by people who worked for a living. And in that day, as in our day, the general belief was if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat unless he's unable to work. And typically, the harder you work, the more you ate. The more diligent we are in our labor, the more we're rewarded with promotions and better jobs and, and so forth. Though there may be some inequities, of course, in every society, but for the most part, that is true. 
And so some of us who have never had our spiritual appetite satisfied, we reason, well, to get ahead in the physical realm, I work harder. To get ahead in the spiritual realm, I must work harder. But listen, God will never tip his hat to you no matter how faithfully you serve in the church, no matter how much time you spend here, no matter how much money you give. God will never say to you on the last day, well, I'm pleased with your effort. Step here into my kingdom. You've earned your way in. No, the Lord is very clear. The food that the Son of Man gives is not earned. It is the gift, and only He can give it. For in Him the Father, even God, has set His seal. He is the only channel. And so there's this murmuring that goes through out this discourse. There's all kinds of interplay that's going on in this sermon. Look at verse 28. It begins, they said therefore to him. Verse 30, they said therefore to him. Verse 34, they said therefore to him. Verse 41, the Jews therefore were grumbling about him. Verse 42, they were saying. Finally, in verse 52, the Jews therefore began to argue with one another. All kinds of dialogue happening through this sermon. So he speaks there about the food which perishes, which is definitely evident in their lives because they're already hungry. The food which endures to eternal life. And the corker is when he makes that statement in verse 41, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Of course, they reason, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? They looked at him as an ordinary person and they said, how can he possibly say that? We saw him grow up in this town. We saw him raised in the carpenter's shop. We, we saw when his daddy died how he took leadership of the family. And now he says he is the bread that comes down out of heaven. Might be like you going to work tomorrow and you stand up at lunch and you say, I am God's messenger to this office and to the world. The folks start asking you some questions. You know, it just might not fly too easy. Now, sometimes people say, well, you know, if I lived in Christ's day, it would have been easier to believe. Well, maybe not. If you grew up with the Lord Jesus, played with him as a boy, went to Sabbath school with him, went to temple, worked with him as an adult, watched him his whole life, and then suddenly he announces, I am the bread that comes down out of heaven. That would be a challenging thought for you. Now, please understand, I am not excusing their unbelief. Had they simply examined some of the prophecies, they would have understood that his claim was true. But I want you to understand that their reaction in many ways is a very natural reaction. How does he say, I've come down out of heaven? So he responds, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. What an incredible Claim. It is so extraordinary, so fantastic. It's either true or he is a madman. Statements like verse 35, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Are incredible statements. And so he says in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the Son of uh, 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 for the life of the world. Now, this term flesh, he uses it six, time o six times over in this paragraph. It's an important word. We saw, I gave you seven reasons last time why it is absolutely impossible contextually to take this as a literal eating of the body and blood of Christ either in that day or in this day through the Lord's table. Now, a common mistake 
in Bible interpretation is to take a figure of speech as literal or to take something that is literal as a figure of speech. And context must always determine what is in view. Clearly, he uses a future tense. I shall give my flesh. He's looking down the road to Golgotha when he will die there on Calvary's cross and he will give it. It was not taken. It was a voluntary death. It was vicarious. It was substitutionary. I'll give it for the life of the whole world. But here's the point. If all the Lord Jesus did was come to this earth and bet a model as to how we would live, should live, we would be a most pitied people. Because by his very life, he would have revealed the holiness of God and condemned us in our sin and shown us that we could never please an infinitely holy God. But he didn't come just to live a righteous life, though he did. He came to die on a cross to reestablish what was lost in Eden, that what we could not do in human flesh, he did by sending his son. Why? That the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to our own power, but according to the spirit when you're born from above. And so three times over in this text, he's going to argue that he alone is the life giver. He alone is able to give you eternal life, resurrected life, new life. And he's going to expound on that in great detail when we come to the upper room discourse. And so he says in verse 53, very pointedly, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. The Amplified paraphrases it, unless you appropriate his life and the saving merit of his blood, you cannot have life in yourself. Now, eating is a picture of appropriation. When I put food in my mouth, I appropriate the benefits of the nutrients found in that food. Even so, when I come to Christ, when I take Christ into my life, I appropriate the benefits of his death. Now, how do you do that? Well, the Bible's clear. Of course, their response is a heated response. Look at verse 52. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They argue. The King James says they strive. The Greek word means they fight, they quarrel. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And of course, he's using a figure of speech, but they are simply thinking in the material, physical realm, much like Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must be born again. How can a man be born when he's old? He can't have a second birth. He said to the woman at the well, I want to give you water, and if you'll drink of it, you'll never thirst again. Sir, you don't have a bucket to draw on the well so deep. How are you going to give us this water? Earlier in this chapter, I am the bread that comes down out of heaven. Oh, Lord, give us this bread forevermore. We're hungry. And then he says, you have to eat my flesh. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then he adds, if that weren't enough, verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life in yourselves. It was bad enough that he would ask them to eat his flesh, but now he adds the drinking of his blood, something a Jew would absolutely abhor because it was forbidden. God said in Leviticus, Leviticus 17, and any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and cut him off from among his people. God was very specific don't eat blood. He told them, you're not even to eat meat that is still bloody because he wanted to highlight the sacredness of blood. 
Because the life is in the blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And that's why he made coats of skin for Adam and Eve. That's why he accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. That's why he asked Abraham to give his uniquely begotten son. That's why he instituted the Passover lamb and commanded the entire Levitical system. It was all looking forward to the sacred, sinless, sovereign blood of the Savior who would die in our place. And so Jesus said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. And then He adds, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now obviously, I gave you seven reasons last time again why you can't take this literally. What does it mean to literally eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Lord Jesus? Well, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And there's a promise attached to the eating and drinking of the flesh and blood of Christ. Namely, I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 40, he's already said, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The same promise. And so what one means, the other must mean. The two are equated. The eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood is the same as looking to the Son and believing on him. It's a metaphorical way of describing belief in him. Jesus is saying, in essence, just as you take food within yourself and it becomes part of you, so when you receive me within yourself, I impart new life to you. And then John notes verse 59 where we finished. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, that's not just filler. That's a very, very important verse because he is noting for us the locale where there is a major turning point in the life of our Lord. Now, that's the sermon. And with that sermon comes three responses, three reactions, the same kind of reactions that people give today when they hear the message of Christ. There's dissension by some. There is a deeper dedication by others. And there is a diabolical deception by still another. So let's begin by thinking about the dissension among the curious. There in your note-taking outline, the first point, the dissension among the curious. Look again at verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. That is, eating his body, drinking his blood. Who can listen to it? Now, who are these disciples? Well, he's not talking about the 12, as the context will show. He is talking about those who loosely followed the Lord Jesus. Understand that when you see the word disciple in the New Testament, it's not always a reference to the 12, and very often not a reference even to a believer. Just as we saw in chapter 2, there is spurious belief, intellectual assent only to the claims of Christ, and true belief. Even so, there are phony disciples and true disciples, real believers and false believers. Now, the word disciple, Greek word, mathetes, simply means a learner a learner or a follower. And so there are people in the New Testament who learn of Christ. They follow him around listening to what he has to say. And so they are called disciples. The fact that they follow does not qualify, qualify what kind of following they do. Please notice, he's going to uncover their motives here. He's going to show that it's a spurious kind of following that it's not a genuine following. Paul speaks of those who are always learning, but who never come to a knowledge of the truth. You can be like that person today. You can come here, you can hear me preach, you can learn, 
and not come to a knowledge of the truth. And so these people, when they hear the Lord and what he has to say, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? It's difficult. The King James says it's hard. Doesn't mean it's difficult in terms of being able to understand. It's a Greek word that means it's intolerable. It's offensive. It's hard to accept. Oh, certainly. There are parts of the sermon that were difficult to, br to break into. But the parts that they did understand really bothered them. The problem as we've studied in these last three weeks is that they were more interested in food and the Lord just meeting their needs than they were in the one who's authorized to give them life. And the metaphor here of eating his body and drinking his blood was incredibly offensive to him, to them. And so what are they doing? Well, they, they like his works, but they don't like his words. They love what he does, but when that comes to the bottom line, they don't like what he says. It's really no different today. There are people today who like what the Lord can do for them. They accept a lot of uh, the works that he did, and they look to him. They're in a fix. They've got cancer. They've got a sickness, a challenge in life, and they play foxhole Christianity. God, deliver me. Help me. And as soon as God helps them, God is gone. Verse 61, but Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? The word stumble is the Greek word scandalizo. We get our word scandalize from it. Does this cause a scandal in your life? See, Jesus claimed to be from heaven. He claimed to be one with God. He claimed that through his death alone you can get life. He made the way very narrow that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, equating with believing in me, you'll never find life. And they didn't like it. They were offended. Why? Because they were pseudo-disciples. The real litmus test of a true disciple, John 8, 31, will teach us. Jesus is giving us this just in kernel form here. He's going to expand it in a great way when we come to the 8th chapter. The real litmus test of a true disciple is that you will continue in his word. You're not saved by continuing. You're not saved by abiding in his word. You're saved by the grace of God alone, but if you've appropriated that grace, there'll be a mark of obedience. The fruit of the root will be a life lived for Christ. You will obey his word. And so the Lord asks this question, very penetrating, verse 62. What then? if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before. Now, Jesus is talking about going back to heaven, about ascending to where he was before. Now, other religious figures had ascended to heaven, and the Jews knew that. We know Enoch did. We know Elijah did. Uh, the tradition of the Jews is that Moses ascended, ultimately, and they may be right. Jude 9 describes a, a fight that the devil had with the archangel Michael over the body of Moses, and they've written in their pseudepigraphal literature a, a book called The Ascension of Moses. I, I don't know. Maybe it's true. It's a tradition. But in either case, the statement that Jesus makes sets him apart from anyone else. Because he's not just talking about ascending to the Father. He's talking about ascending from the place where he once descended. He's making a claim to eternality, to deity, to preexistence. And of course, this puts him in a class all by himself. What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? Now, in the original, the question is left open so that you could take it in one of two ways. And by design, the Lord doesn't finish the question. Is he asking if then, when you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, will you be convinced? 
Or is he asking, if then when you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, will you be more offended? Will ascending to where he was before be even a greater offense, or will it remove the offense? Well, it depends on your response to the cross. Now, remember, we already saw, we already saw in John's Gospel, the third chapter, that John the Apostle puts the crucifixion together with the ascension. He put the, the way of suffering to the pathway of glory. And that was not unique to John. It was a common principle that runs all the way through the Old Testament scriptures. There's many that we could cite, but let me give you one example, Isaiah 52. In Isaiah 52, in the 52nd and 53rd chapters, you have a prophecy of Messiah. In those two chapters, it's like an eyewitness 700 years before Christ standing at the foot of the cross explaining all that is going to happen 700 years later there on Mount Calvary. And so, speaking of the Christ, he says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. He's going to be high. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to have the name above every name. He'll be at the right hand of the Father, but not before he dies. And so, in the same breath, Isaiah said, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand. The sprinkling of peoples through the blood of his cross is the means to this ascension, to this exaltation where he will be high and lifted up. Here's the point. If these grumbling uh, pseudo-disciples find the Lord's language to be offensive, what will they do when he is crucified? What will they do with a bloodied Messiah? How will they respond then? Because the cross is the pathway to the ascension. And that's why the verse is left open. Because how men and women respond to the message of the cross will depend how they will answer this question. And so to take away all ambiguity as to what he means, to make it crystal clear that he was not literally speaking of eating his flesh and eating his body, he says in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit in our life. So he goes back to their original objection. There's no salvation in literally eating of the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of Man. He's saying it's not my physical body that needs to be in you, but my spirit which becomes a reality through his word. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit in life. Eating flesh, drinking blood profits you nothing. Just as the Lord told Nicodemus, it's through the Holy Spirit, it's by a second birth that God imparts this new life. It's the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in your human spirit that will give you life when you trust Christ's death to save you. And the same Spirit who gave the God-breathed words of Holy Scripture, when you absorb those words by faith, you get new life. Because the mouth speaks that which fills the heart, and so the Lord spoke literally the Word of God. Everything He said was not written, but everything He said was God's Word, because He is God. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John. 
1-800-273-0020. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search of Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to Search the Scriptures.